Ring ring. Hello. Jesuit in 1939 on the eve of the war 
and I was a Jesuit up till 1964, and in the meantime, I did special studies. I was trained as an expert in Semitic languages, Oriental art, and uh, archaeology, and then um, anthropology and theology, uh, and getting doctorates out of all that sort of thing. And I ended up as an expert, uh, uh, first of all, uh, on, on Middle East questions, and uh, gradually I was co-opted into helping uh, a pope called John the 23rd, the Rory Poly Pope, uh, <laughs> Angelo Roncalli, as he was called, mm -hmm. and then his successor, Paul VI, uh, who died in 1978, to be succeeded by John Paul II, uh, with an interim pope of 34 days old, John Paul I. I uh, but in the year 1963-64, I went to Paul VI, whom I knew very well, and asked him for permission to leave the Jesuits, uh, to keep my vow of celibacy, but to forsake my vow of poverty so I could earn my own living, and uh, uh, also forsake my vow of obedience so that I wouldn't have to obey people whose policies I did not like and whose theology I suspected of uh, not being uh, orthodox enough for my mind anyway, whatever, because one must finally rely on one's own judgment, because you'll, only be ju you'll be judged only on your own judgment, not on what anybody else says. And I came to New York in that year, 1965, and I've been here ever since for my sins and my happiness. <laughs> I became an American citizen the ritual time five years later. Well, I hope it has been uh, well for you. Are you comfortable with the decisions that you have made in your life? I, this isn't a work. I can't call you Malachi. That's somebody with this many doctorates. I'm going to have to call you doctor. So I guess uh -huh. well, absolutely. Really, if I, ought, I should call you doctor. No, 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 no doctorates. Um, any, anyway, doctor, uh, are you are you pleased with the decisions that you have made in your life? Would you change any? No, no. Life has been good to me. God has been good to me. No, no, I, I, I would not. I would leave it as it is. I might change a little thing here. You know, when you look at the old machine, you change a nut and put a little oil into this crank and uh, polish up that little flywheel. And that, but but the, the overall machinery has served its purpose, I think, in my human judgment. God be my judge. All right. Well, um, I have a lot of new listeners uh, in Chicago. And uh, sadly, in Chicago, uh, Cardinal Joseph Bernadine has passed away. Yes. And I was wondering if you uh, knew uh, the Cardinal, uh, if you ever met him, and if you had anything to say to those folks in Chicago who surely are going to miss him. Well, I'll tell you, the, the all, all death is sort of a symbol of human defeat. You know, a life ends, and this ends, life ends rather abruptly. We, we did know that the Cardinal was ill for quite a while, and... Uh, I think they said pancreatic cancer right. uh, the ultimate identified cause. Uh, but uh, it, it was a, a quick end because we did not expect it to be so sudden. And as in many cases like that, it's overnight almost. Uh, he disappears into it, the cold of eternity, as the French says. Le froid éternel, into the cold eternal, although eternity itself may be so cold as all that, if it's lit up by the love of God and and, or the fires of hell, <laughs> whichever really one ends up with. Uh, so it's always a defeat. It's always a sense of uh, loss at that purpose. Carlos Bernardine was a very distinguished cleric. Uh, he he uh, comes from, came from South Carolina, and he ended up in the most populous and important uh, Roman Catholic uh, community of Chicago uh, in his 
in his final apotheosis, in his final development. Um, he is missed because of the central position he occupied. Uh, and that position should be summed up, frankly and honestly, as being the man in charge of a huge machine. Many thought that he might have been the first American pope. Yes, he, he himself indeed would like to have been pope. And in the last big public uh, statement of his, uh, which amazed a lot of people, which we'll describe briefly in a moment, uh, he sounded a papal note. That was a press conference and declaration he held uh, in a couple of weeks ago only, in which he uh, proposed that Catholics should seek a new ground of unity, as he called it. And this was astounding, Art, because the, for Catholics, traditionally, since the time of the Emperor Constantine, the ground for unity has always been the papacy itself, the leader. And this time, Cardinal Bernin was stepping out, and uh, his fellow cardinals in the United States, especially Cardinal Law of Boston and uh, O'Connor of uh, New York, and uh, the man in, 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 in uh, Philadelphia, the, the cardinal there, they disagreed with what he said because they recognized immediately the papal conclave character of that statement. What, what Bernadine was doing that day was stating what he thought the church should become. Uh -huh. It was a papal speech. And um, I think that by that time he knew that he was doomed to die soon. But still and all, he made a pitch for it because he did belong uh, and was the leader of a faction amongst the cardinals, which is a very powerful faction. And that faction would rather diminish the importance of the papacy completely and make it much more uh, an affair of uh, a consensus amongst the great cardinals and bishops of the church. So that was his contribution to it, and it stirred a lot of ire in Rome, and it stirred a lot of controversy here. Now, then, as regards his achievement as such, one cannot say that Catholicism flourished during his reign as Cardinal Archbishop of, of, uh, of Chicago. Uh, only one out of every six Catholics goes to Mass in Chicago. Mm. How does that compare to the national number? Uh, that compares rather badly with the national number. It's not as bad as that. And then several churches were closed in his time. Catholicism as a, as a, as a mode of devotion uh, to God and to Christ and to the angels and saints, and, uh, with, which is the essence of Catholicism, did not flourish under Cardinal Bernadine. We can't fool ourselves that it did. But he was a great public leader in the sense that he took a lead and he managed very carefully and skillfully with a, almost uh, an extraordinary touch. He managed the, that very powerful body of men, two, uh, 280, 280 of them, called the American Bishops or the National Conference of Catholic Bishops, the NCCB, with its political arm, uh, the uh, NCCC, that's the, the the, the, uh, it's, it's the political uh, arm of the bishops in America. He managed that. And he also, during his time, he forced the hand of John Paul II in several points. And he forced them by using skillfully the Vatican's dependence on American money, American contributions from the bishops mm -hmm. to keep the Vatican out of the red. So even for the Vatican, money talks? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I think right up to the door 
bills of hell. Money talks. I not. see. Be awfully frank with you. In the last two days of his life, yes. he wrote to the um, United States Supreme Court yes. urging it not to allow doctor-assisted suicide. Yes, he did. He did. And that he was joined by hundreds of organizations and that sort of business. Uh, 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 proposing the same thing, and, and by the way, the Clinton administration itself has decided and sh has declared that it itself it, it discourages the idea of any any action on the part of the Supreme Court of the United States favoring uh, a doctor-assisted suicide. How would you, um, Doctor, argue against somebody who would say, "Look"? I'm in the last stages of a horrible disease. I'm racked by pain. My life is no longer um, functional mm -hmm. uh, in any way that I can measure or want to measure, and I wish not to suffer out these last few days and wish to take uh, my own life or have somebody assist me in that process, whatever the case may be. In other words, the argument of it's my life, whose life is it anyway? Yes. The, the, the main... The, the difficulty in answering question like that, which it is, it is to be answered finally, in all honesty, is that it just cannot be regarded uh, isolatedly as a personal problem, uh, because unless one is totally an atheist uh, and one does not believe in any sense that God has any right or just has a say in anything or that God even exists. The difficulty is also that uh, what it would open up by way, uh, and even the, the American government, uh, in its comments uh, to the Supreme Court, uh, is of that opinion, and Bernadine was too, and most of the organizations, hundreds of them that have uh, communicated with the Supreme Court, say the same thing, it opens a Pandora's box. And finally, there's this fact about it, that you can nowadays, within the limits of medical practice and medical ethics, you can obtain palliatives for your pain. Uh, which will diminish the stress of it all. Yes. Uh, and they, I've always understood them. Art, I may be wrong. I've always understood it that those palliatives, those drugs used to diminish pain, gradually reduce vitality. And don't, they don't exactly hasten death, but they don't promote life either. What they do by diminishing pain, uh, they bring you closer uh, in a more comfortable way. And finally, they. See, for a Christian artist, a terribly important thing that any drop, any moment of human suffering has an eternal value in the light of the sufferings of the man-god on his cross yes. on Calvary. And that, I know, is a hard doctrine, but because Christians believe they're here to prepare for heaven, not to establish a paradise on earth, and if the paradise uh, ceases, then they can wipe themselves out, uh, but that uh, earth, uh, life on earth is a preparation. It's a hard doctrine. I know it's a hard doctrine. So that pain, that pain is part of what we are here to experience. That's right. If I have pain, if I have a toothache, if I have a breech birth with a child, if I lose a child, if I have arthritis, if I get uh, a disease, it, it can be and should be uh, used to merge with the sufferings, the meritorious sufferings of uh, Jesus Christ. That's the basic Christian doctrine. For those who are not Christian, I know it's not much consolation, but it still operates on their, in their case. Well, I'm afraid it makes sense. Doctor, stand by. We're at the bottom of the hour, and we'll be right back. ...of their transsexuality or the transsexual operation. Uh, they are not... They, in no way can you say that that signifies...
otherwise ipso facto possession at all. That's an illusion. Um, with regard to transsexuality, homosexuality, yes. uh, what advice do you give if somebody comes to you and says, uh, Father, I'm a, I'm a homosexual, I'm struggling with myself. I don't like uh, what I am and what I'm doing, but I'm driven and I can't stop. How do you advise? What do you say? Uh, if I have the uh, the occasion and the time and the convenience, it's all a matter of convenience. If they're calling from, say, uh, Anchorage, Alaska, it's one thing. If they're calling from 64th and Madison Avenue in New York, it's something else, of course, <laughs> near where I live are, you know. Yes. But depending on those ordinary human factors, which sometimes determine our fate, depending on those, uh, there is a spiritual treatment, spiritual, um, not therapy, it's the wrong word to use, it's a spiritual treatment which can resolve uh, peacefully and successfully the struggle one has with one's sexuality, homosexuality or heterosexuality, or transsexuality for that matter. Uh, but that's a very delicate spiritual operation that must be done with authority and skill. But it can be done. And it's not an irreparable uh, and unchangeable situation. No, it, it's possible. But the one thing, the one thing that the person involved must get in their mind is, it's not a therapy. It's not the work of a therapist as such. It doesn't rely on psychological or psychophysical uh, factors, although it treats those factors because they're involved in all sexuality. Oh, isn't that interesting? So it's not psychotherapy, and it's not an exorcism. No, no, it's not. It's not. It's a spiritual treatment. See, but it—I it, don't need to be plunging into a description of it, which would take us the whole of our five or six hours together today. Are <laughs> really good, but uh, if we have that much time, but there—I don't think you require that, or the questioner requires that. But no, there's more than hope. There's concrete. There are concrete steps to be taken, but as I say, it's a, it's a treatment. It takes time and money and uh, take convenience of location. Do you understand me? Yes, of course I do. Of course I do. So uh, it's not an impossible situation at all. But the nature, then the nature of the treatment is of a spiritual understanding. Of, of That's right. It's spiritual understanding, but it's also this, that there is no doubt in my mind at all as a priest. Now, I've been preaching since 1954, steadily, before that I was in training. Um, there's no doubt about it. There is aid, help. There is aid, succor, in the shape of what is called in Christian theology, the grace of God. The special supernatural help, which does repair uh, any damage that our faculties have suffered through living. And our faculties do suffer, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the way we live and what is done to us, you know, I'm weird by, I say, a father who is a, a drug addict and a mother who is a lush, I'm going to be damaged. Uh, That's correct, yes. So, so yes. I mean, anything like that can be repaired, but the chief factor of doing that is a special help from God called grace. It's supernatural. It's not a dimension. It's not something you put in your pocket. It's not something you measure. But, boy, is it powerful. Um, all right. On to another question. Uh, on the last program, yes. you said during the next three, three and a half years or so, keep your eye, your eyes to the sky. Yes. That 
something, and, and Doctor, I must tell you, uh, with the program I did last night, yes. uh, with so many other programs, yes. uh, with the remote viewers, all these yes. different people, yes. Yes. Uh, American natives, yes. they're all saying roughly the same thing. Something's coming. Something big. Yes. Something's coming, but that sums it up. Our, really, <laughs> I mean, it sums up our mentality. And you know, if I could break into you, of course, that betrays my Irish blood. We Irish are always interrupting each other. Quite all right. To, to improve uh, for the, the person is saying. Um, if I could say this much to you, no matter what, along the entire spectrum of beliefs, from fuddy-duddy Roman Catholic priests like me, over to something radically different, uh, radically different in belief, there's a common sensation today yes. that we are passing through a window, as people have the expression, from one era, from one condition, human condition, to another condition. And half of our confusion and our squabbling and our impatience today uh, and our fears, above all our fears are, because fear is a very dominant factor today oh, yes. in public and private life and personal life, that is due to the fact that we all sense, without being able to pin it down authoritatively, that we are indeed passing through a window of opportunity. A kind of quickening is going on. Yes, there is a thing going on, and it, it, it cannot be laughed at. I remember Freud in 1938 publishing a statement in Vienna. I followed it because my daddy was a doctor. I was a young man of 17, but I was engrossed in studies like this. And he's saying that why is it, he said it at one of these psychoanalytic meetings that was held in, in Vienna, just pre-war Vienna. And uh, by that time, Vienna was under the, 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 the grip of Hitler with the Anschluss um, and the Nazis. Why is it, he said, that the majority of you, interesting, his, his fellow psychiatrists, are reporting that a vast majority of your patients are tortured by dreams of barbed wire and bloody bodies? Why? Why now? Of course, they knew nothing about the, the horrible things that were going to be transpire for the next five or six years. But that there is a, and it does go back to something which was true about Carl Jung. I don't like Carl Jung at all. I don't like his personal life, and I don't like the theories. But he did talk about this sort of um, universal consciousness. Yes. And uh, of course, he made it into something else. And like a lot of other people, having found something valuable in nature, he proceeded to imagine what it was. And that was not scientific. And he went beyond the data. But there is, there is a consciousness amongst us all, in spite of our differences, uh, due to everything, from sex to color to shape to race to education, uh, that there is something big taking place. We, uh, the phrase is, we're passing through a window of opportunity into what we do not know. And that is confusing because the old world, the one we knew, has passed away. There's no doubt about it. We're constructing something or something is being constructed of us, of us, of us. We're the living stones in this new temple. I, I felt as though we're past the point of no return. That doesn't mean the end of everything. It just means we're going to go on to whatever is next. That's right. We can't go back. There's no going back. And, and we know that, and that's confusing for us all, because, you know, there are two things that are very frightening for a human being. The first is to be in a land he doesn't know, she doesn't know, totally alien. Yes. But one of the most uh, disturbing things is to, be, is to be persuaded 
that there's an alien being you don't know now in your presence or in your area. I would do it. It's very disturbing because that arouses up the good old territorial uh, imperative, as, as, as Robert Audrey used to call it, but it also arouses up this fear of the alien. We don't like what is alien. We must know it. Could uh, what is coming, uh, Doctor, be spiritual? In other words, something that will affect all of us? Art, uh, actually, you know, and you, 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 you've got a source of information that most people haven't got with your marvelous syndication and your own intelligence. Best edge. Civil damages on that. Uh, I mean, probably going on for 
obviously over a decade or so. Uh, it is a really amazing thing what these states get away with and what some of these jurisdictions get away with with regard to damaging an individual's life uh, many years over and sometimes decades. We see a story, you know, every few weeks of somebody who's been in jail wrong, wrongfully convicted. And then many of these states have set up situations where they, they are under no obligation to in any way make any of those people whole. And it is outrageous. And of course, Many of those individuals are black men. And so somehow or another, they're able to get away with this. I have absolutely no idea how they're able to get away with it. Uh, they should be sued. The department should be sued. The city should be sued and everybody else that was involved uh, for damage. And, and those damages would be well into the millions. I'm sure DeMario can speak on this a lot better than I can, but it is outrageous. DeMario. Uh, I mean, it, it's crazy to read this story and see the kind of damage that this thug cop inflicted uh, in his tactical unit inflicted on people. Yeah, and Sister Lauren, I'll tell you how they can get continue to get away with it because, again, the Department of Justice allows it. As we talked about earlier and we talk about every week, the federal government is abrogating its responsibility to protect us from these type of police departments. And when I say these type of police departments, these are the this is the model from around the country. Believe me, this is not an aberration. This is not a bad apple. The system is bad. It's a corrupt system. It's built out of slave catchers, and it rewards this type of behavior. It rewards and protects these type of officers. I see it each and every day. People having their lives destroyed. People being put in jail, losing their jobs, or just complete BS. I would say something stronger, but I'm trying to be cool. And I want to say another thing. This is another example. I say this all the time. I'm a broken record on this. People say, oh, we need more black cops. We need more. It does not matter. The color is not about color, it's about culture. And the culture of the police departments is corruption, discrimination, and racism. And most of the time, these black cops, they fall right into that culture. Either they start doing the same things as their white counterparts because they want to move up, or they're weak, too weak to stop and fight hard against it and call these people out. This is a travesty. 22 months, that makes me sick to my stomach. This individual should be in jail for the cumulative amount of time he put individuals in jail. And yes, there will be lawsuits, but these those lawsuits will be pennies on a dollar when you're talking about time in prison, time away from your family, time away from your career, and just time locked up. It's ridiculous. It's outrageous. And I'm again calling on the Biden administration and Department of Justice to do their job quicker, faster, more aggressively, more efficiently. Uh, folks, let's now go to Alabama way former uh, Alabama prison officer has been indicted on federal charges of assaulting three inmates and then submitting a false statement after the incident. Lorenzo Mills is accused of hitting inmates with a wooden bat with wooden baton in October 2020. Mills is also charged with making false written statements. He is facing a statutory maximum sentence of 10 years in prison for each civil rights charge and 20 years in prison for the obstruction of justice offense. Uh, this is the thing here, uh, DeMario. We often talk about law enforcement and uh, police abuse. Uh, and we are seeing now with Christian Clark leading the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, just so many cases of violence being committed against people by corrections officers. Yeah, again, I have a lot of... <laughs> 
I have a lot of experience in this, you know, uh, representing individuals who've been killed in jail or their families and beaten in jail and, and also understanding from a state level of, of funding. So I'll say here in Oklahoma, for example, you're talking about people in the jails who usually come from these small towns where they place these jails to prop up these small white towns, their economies by putting these jails in there, putting black folks and, and poor folks in these prisons. And then you can just have a high school, you know, basically 18 years old, 20 years old, and you become a prison guard in some of the worst locations in America. It's outrageous. And again, it's ridiculous. And the Department of Justice is doing some things, but it's, again, they're not doing enough. You know, I think last week, the Department of Justice announced that they were uh, finding that that prison down in Mississippi, I think it's Parchment Prison, was finally was going to say Parchment, was, yeah. Parchment was a violation of civil rights. Well, it took them three years to make that determination when three years ago, eight or nine people got killed in a span of like 10 days. It should not take that long for the Department of Justice to come in and do a proper investigation and shut these prisons down. It should not take years and years and years. It should take... It should be much, much faster. They should ask for much more and more money. They need to more than double the staff at the Department of Justice, and they need to do what they can do, what the law allows them to do. I am dealing with them right now on some cases, asking them to do some things that I'm wish they just dragging their feet. I have a call tomorrow, in fact, on an issue where it's just been dragging their feet. So they need to move faster. People's lives are at risk. People's liberty are at risk, and it's destroying, destroying, destroying black people. Mustafa? I mean, we, the physical abuse that happens inside of prisons and jails is just, there's an epidemic that goes on. And, you know, I've worked with some folks and I've talked to others, you know, and, you know, we don't do enough about it. There are over 390,000 correctional officers across our country. Imagine that. And yet we only hear about a handful of these types of egregious actions that happen every year. And it's because of great attorneys like the one that we have on the panel and others who are willing to lean in and continue to push and fight. But if we know we've got close to 400,000 officers that are out there in the correctional space, then we know there have to be even more folks who are dealing with this type of physical abuse, mental abuse, and a number of other things that happen inside of our prisons and jails. So we need, as has been said, you know, we've got to have a whole lot more folks who are at the Department of Justice um, and, and also on the state level. They need to build out. Um, more accountability in this process where folks are going to continue to have a silent voice. It's hard for them to get traction to be able to get people to pay attention to what's going on uh, inside of these jail cells and these prison cells. Uh, indeed. And so part of the problem uh, that we have uh, is that there's this, this this whole idea for a lot of these people that, look, they're inmates. Who cares? They don't actually deserve uh, to be treated with dignity. That's part of the problem, Lauren. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge part of the problem. Uh, I've heard a lot about this as I was growing up because my father, in fact, was a CO at uh, Rikers Island and the Brooklyn House of Detention. And uh, his overtime put me through college. Uh, the stories he used to tell were fairly frightening, to say the least. Um, he was a prison guard for 20 years. So it was uh, what you would expect. I, I still cannot believe that from the time I was a little kid to right now that Rikers Island is still open. As was discussed earlier, the United States leads the world in the rate of incarceration. We have, you know, over 2 million people who are in the system in some way, shape, or form. And this is all about money at the end of the day. Like most things that we can't get rid of, that we should get rid of on a moral level. It's all about money. 
Incarceration is about money. Putting those people through the system is about money. And what upsets that apple cart of not having those people going through that system is, you know, the police salaries. And, and as somebody who's got a few relatives uh, in the in the uh, law enforcement space uh, in New York and, and in Virginia, I can tell you that, you know, their pensions, all of that is just a a, a, a round and round wheel of money and support base for everybody who's making that money, not just for small towns, but certainly for small towns, small white towns uh, in rural parts of the United States, but in big cities. And, and this, this thing that we have with incarceration, how we haven't been hit as a country with some sort of international human rights violation from The Hague, I have absolutely no idea. Because we hear this, these stories all the time. We know they're going on. We know that there's nobody looking into it. We know DOJ is not looking into it. And yes, there is, in fact, this attitude that these people are in jail, they don't matter. And, and But see, if we were talking about some other country, you know, Russia or China, we would be acting holier than thou. But we have a massive problem in the United States with how we think about people we incarcerate and, and the fact that this is all about cash. You know, Lauren, that is so uh, on point. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, bro. I'm sorry, bro. No, 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 Demar, go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna say, you know, I'm so Lauren, you were so on point when you said we talk about other countries. You know, everybody talking about oh, our democracy and, and our human rights. America doesn't believe in human rights, particularly of black people. America doesn't believe in democracy, particularly for black people. And this is a great example of it. You know, right here in Oklahoma, we lock up more people, uh, more women, more women than any place else in the world in Oklahoma, and we do it each and every day. And and again, it is all about money, and it's all about. You know, when I say the DOJ can do more here in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma County Jail, it's one of the most notorious. It's like a Rikers Island. 10, 12, 15, 20 people die there every year. I had a case where a client of mine, the, the, the prison guard set him up to get beat up by a rival gang and that killed him. And once we dug into that case, we found that since 1995, since 1995, the DOJ has been documenting the civil rights abuses in that jail, where the jails don't even lock, where they're eating, you know, feces is backing up into the jail cells, where they're eating, the, they, don't, they don't have a functional kitchen, they have to feed them out of, out of the, the, the um, just transports. It's ridiculous. And guess what? That's a jail. These people are not convicted. These people have just been charged with a crime. And guess what? Most of those people are there because they're poor. They can't pay the bill to get out of jail. So these individuals are being deprived of their civil rights. The Department of Justice has known this since 1995, yet they won't shut that jail down. That jail is still ongoing today. People are still dying in that jail today, just like Rikers Island. And it's a travesty. This is why I'm so hard on the Department of Justice and the federal government. It is the federal government that has to move in, utilize its awesome powers, stop sending, well, I'm going to say stop sending. If you can send billions of dollars to Ukraine, and you can jump to the forefront to protect Ukraine. Well, damn it, we need you to spend billions of dollars on our communities right here because you're the one destroying them. Jump to the forefront for our people because we built this country and we deserve it, and we're taxpayers today. That's my position. All right, folks, let's talk about this case out of California where the ACLU, Northern California, they are filing a lawsuit against the Oakland Unified School District claiming the district's new school closure plan disproportionately discriminates against black and brown students. School boards intend to close seven schools and merge two others. At least four, at least at four of those schools, the population is over 50% black. The ACLU says the plan will harm black students with special needs and violates black students' fundamental right to equal educational opportunity 
under the California Constitution and discriminates based upon race. And so we'll see what happens with uh, that particular story. Uh, all right, folks, uh, in uh, today's In Memoriam, uh, longtime saxophonist for Earth, Wind & Fire, Andrew Woolfolk, Woolfolk, has passed away. He was one of the original members of Earth, Wind & Fire through the historic run. The veteran musician who joined Earth, Wind & Fire in 1972 passed away Sunday after a battling a long illness. He was with Earth, Wind & Fire through their most formative and influential years in music and contributed to some of their biggest hits, including September. Andrew Woolfolk is an ancestor at the age of 71. All right, folks, when we come back, uh, we will have our marketplace segment where we focus on black businesses, a black undergarment company. All y'all wear underwear. Might as well support a black-owned company that makes the undergarments. We'll talk to them next. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered right here on the Black Star Network. On the next Get Wealthy with me.
When it came to my weight, I was told to eat less and just move more. But the weight always came back. That's because there's a science to obesity.
this just got a little weird.